Let's talk about the origins of the idea of a fallen angel. We still do not, at the stage we have the emergence of this idea of a fallen angel, the first evidence we have for it in, in the sense of a fallen angel who is opposed to God's will is about 225 BCE. First Enoch that you read in preparation for today is our earliest evidence for the idea of a fallen angel with a will opposed to God. We've already seen there's plenty of angels in the Hebrew Bible, and there's even some Satan, satanic angels in the sense of adversarial angels, but they're always doing the will of God. They're being someone else's adversary, not God's adversary, right? But we're now seeing about 225 BC, the emergence of an angel who is God's adversary. But it's in its rudimentary form that we first see it in 225 BC. It's not the full-blown story of Satan. The whole course we have here is sort of following the development that leads to that full-blown story. It's within Jewish apocalypticism, within Judean apocalypticism, I'm arguing today, that the fallen angel opposed to God is born. Satan's origins are within Judean apocalypticism. Satan in the evil sense of an evil personified figure opposed to God. And this story of the fallen angels in First Enoch represents our earliest idea of that uh, starting to develop. At this point, though, he's an undeveloped figure. We'll soon get into the details of the fallen angels in First Enoch, but they're not a developed character. There's not a whole lot of explanation about what they're about besides a couple of the things they do that clearly show they're opposed to God, uh, the will of God at some point. One thing to sort of give the heads up on here is that the figure of Satan develops a clearer character as the fallen angel story we're looking at today merges with the adversary figures we have in the Hebrew Bible and merges with the rebel kings that we talked about last week in the Bible and merges with the Leviathan chaos monster of the Bible. It's when all of these different strands of the Hebrew Bible, originally independent and originally having nothing to do with fallen angels, when they all merge together, that's when the story of Satan starts to fill out. That's when the character of Satan starts to be developed by people who combine those things together later on. But in 225 BCE, that's not yet happening. Around 105 BCE that we're going to get to today, you do have an author combining the Satan figure in the Hebrew Bible and some of the angels that do uh, apparently negative things in the Bible merge with uh, or evil personified descendant of a fallen angel in about 105 BC. So it's starting to happen in the period we're looking at, but it's not there in 225 BC. So don't think that we have, in the very first story of a fallen angel, the full-blown Satan. We do not. We do not even have the name Satan occurring in this earliest story of fallen angels. We have other names that we're going to get into. Another point I want to make today, on top of that whole scenario there, is that alongside the battle between God and Satan is the idea that we find in quite a few apocalyptic Judean writings and within Christian literature later on, that God has a certain functionary, 
a divine functionary usually, an angelic functionary, who especially plays a role as the end-time combatant of the adversary, the end-time combatant against the fallen angel or angels. So God has a chosen divine being who does his will in combating Satan and finishing off the other angel who is opposed to God's will. And we'll get into that today, too, looking at some of the end-time figures that, that are involved in these scenarios. First, let's explain a little bit about Judean apocalypticism as the framework in which Satan emerges. The apocalyptic worldview is a worldview that says we're living in an evil age. Remember that whole thing? Dominated by evil powers. There is an evil force fighting against God. Named a variety of different things depending on which Judean apocalyptic thinker you talk to. And that although this seems like evil is winning the day, God has a plan, it's all predetermined, to bring the whole war to an end, defeat evil, and evil personified, in order to wipe out evil, including evil human beings, and set up a perfect kingdom for the people that are on God's side. So that's the quick scenario, the quick picture of what we mean when we say an apocalyptic worldview. And we saw an early version of it in Zoroastrianism, and another of the earliest versions of this sort of apocalyptic worldview is Judean. It's within this first Enoch. It's the first example of this worldview. It's also the first example of the story of the fallen angels being developed in a particular way. In this worldview, there are several characteristics that are worth highlighting. First of all, pe people who think like this assume that God reveals things to special righteous people. And then they write up what God has revealed to them. That's the sort of writing you're reading here when you're reading First Enoch. A person who claims that God has shown them something and they're writing about it. Within their, what they write about, what God revealed, and what God tells them, there's a thoroughgoing dualism. Almost everything's in terms of good versus evil, light versus darkness, evil people versus good people, evil angels versus good angels. Is the thoroughgoing twoism, dualism, that's characteristic of this worldview. And Satan is at the heart of the apocalyptic worldview. Another way of putting it is you wouldn't have apocalypticism at all without Satan. And within Judean culture, some Judeans are apocalyptic and believe in that scenario I just said. Some Judeans are not apocalyptic and couldn't care less about it. Right? It's not all Judeans, it's not all Jews who think apocalyptically in this period. Some of them do. Let's talk about this uh, story of the fallen angels. First Enoch, the first few chapters, is actually an interpretation, isn't it, of a little tiny passage in Genesis. The book of Genesis, attributed to Moses, the first of the five books of Moses, has traditions within it that may well go back many, many, many centuries. However, the Pentateuch, as we have it, the first five books of Moses, including Genesis, were pulled together and reformulated and rewritten during the exilic period, most likely, during the 500s BCE. In Genesis, we have this one little story that becomes important to later to the emergence of Satan. In Genesis, however, there are no indications 
of a Satan sort of figure at all. It's the interpretation of this passage that makes it significant for the emergence of Satan. In Genesis, it doesn't really have any significance at all to the story of Satan in Genesis itself. But let's look at the Genesis account so that we can see what First Enoch is embellishing. So in Genesis chapter 6, we're at the point where creation has already happened. You have the two different narratives about creation. One about the seven-day creation that focuses more on the broad view of what happens each day. The other one that's more nitty-gritty about Adam and Eve and all that. You then have this genealogy of generations after Adam, right? Which you have in chapter 5. So it says, Adam lived for so many years, then he had a son, and then Seth lived so many years, and then he had a son named Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared. Oh, look at the next one. Verse 21 of chapter 5. Enoch. This is the figure that the author of 1st Enoch chooses. He's writing in, remember, 200 or 225 BCE. Thousands of years after the supposed narrative of what's happening in Genesis. This is common for apocalyptic Judeans to choose a figure from the past that's well-respected in order to express the visions they feel God has given them. And so this is the Enoch, that this is written as though it's from. This guy between Adam and Noah. So we're in this genealogy, the seven generations between Adam and Noah, and then we get this little tiny story that the author of 1st Enoch embellishes. Take a look at the first verses of chapter 6. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh, their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans, who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Now, if you only had that story, you certainly wouldn't say, well, that's the story of Satan, the fallen angel, and he's opposed to God, etc., would you? But that's what gets developed in that way within First Enoch. We have here in Genesis itself the story of angels. Sons of God is just another way of saying angels. There's a variety of terms used in the Hebrew Bible for divine beings alongside God that assist God. And here you have sons of God seeing human women, being attracted to them, having sex with them, and there being offspring. That's just about all you have here. But look at what immediately follows the story. So, fine, in Genesis there's not much story of evil, there's not uh, you know, anything like that in connection with the sons of God. The sons of God mate with humans, the offspring are naturally supernatural, the huge giants. They're heroes, they're well-known people from the past that are tall. But look what happens next in the Genesis narrative. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals, etc. It immediately follows that story of the sons of God mating with humans. But the Genesis narrative doesn't explain if any relationship between that and this. It doesn't say, you know, the reason humans were so bad was because angels had mated with humans. Genesis doesn't say that, does it? It just has this mysterious story 
about the origin of giants of old, and then boom into the story of, by the way, God is now mad at all the humans and wants to wipe them all out. The mysterious thing about it that I'm pointing you to is also what bothered the author of First Enoch. First Enoch's elaboration of the story of the sons of God mating with human beings is an explanation for why God sends the flood and at First Enoch, it's an explanation of the judgment that God is going to bring again at the end of time. That there's going to be the flood writ large at the end, to, end of time. That the evil people that God destroyed with the flood was caused by fallen angels. First Enoch's going to say, Genesis did not say. And that that's going to happen again on a larger scale at the end of time. The judgment of the angels for mating with humans, and then later on, the judgment of all humankind at the end time when God intervenes in that apocalyptic scenario that First Enoch has. First Enoch is focused primarily in this retelling of the story on explaining the origins of evil. It's that theodicy question. Remember that uh, Russell explains that term to you and we've talked about it. Where does evil come from? Another way of putting it is you can have Judean authors who say that evil came into the world because human beings were evil and behaved evil and chose to morally behave in evil ways. You could have a Judean, and you do have other Judeans saying that, but that's not what this author says. And throughout the course, we can see that, ask this question of, for this particular author who talks about evil personified, what is the origins of evil? How does humanity relate to evil? Where did it come from? More of the details we now need to get into in First Enoch to figure out how the fallen angel story becomes Satan's story. So he explains it in terms of the fallen angels, but he has some details, doesn't he? It's not just the story of sons of God, angels is another way of putting it, mating with humans. There are names he gives, aren't there? What are the key names that first Enoch talks about when he expands the story of the angels who leave heaven and go to earth to mate with humans. So Semyaz and Azazel, you want to remember those terms because they're the first example of what will become Satan. They are the head angel or angels in the first Enoch material explicitly over and over again he comes back to them as the main instigators they are the angels who go against the will of God and lead other angels with them what's different about the sin of Semyaz compared to the sin of Azazel the sin of Azazel is emphasized mainly as revealing secrets that's the sin of Semyaz having sex with human beings angelic beings having sex with human beings in the material. What I'm trying to point out to you is that it seems that the author of First Enoch is using material that existed before he wrote. So before 225 BCE, there was already circulating, most likely, two different traditions expanding the story of the sons of God from Genesis mating with human beings. One of those versions of the story had the head angel being Semyaz. And the sin of Semyaz is, like you said, what the sin of the sons of God in Genesis are, if you want to call it sin. 
angelic beings, beings sort of crossing the boundary of heavens, going down to earth and mating with human beings. So one tradition about expanded on the Genesis narrative in that way. Another tradition expanded on the Genesis narrative with Azazel as the chief angel who led other angels down to reveal secrets to humanity. What Azazel and his angels reveal to humanity, they reveal secrets, but what is consistent about them? What are they really about? And how do they relate to introducing evil? What is evil is another way of putting it here in this author's view. Knowledge about something. What is the thing that you shouldn't have knowledge of? That if you have knowledge of it, you potentially will be evil. Being sexy and warfare. The two secrets that Azazel and his angels introduce to humanity that is their downfall. That explains in this narrative why God felt that humanity was so evil that he had to blot out humanity entirely. So, and Azazel taught the people the art of making swords and knives and shields and breastplates. War. Azazel reveals the secrets of war to humanity, and then humanity takes it and goes with it, right? And he showed their chosen ones bracelets, decorations, eyeshadow, ornamentation, beautifying the eyelids, eyeliner. <laughs> is introduced and this leads to evil, right? Uh, and alchemy that allows you to do all these uh, sort of different types of makeup. Look what comes next there. And there were many wicked ones and they committed adultery and erred and all their conduct became corrupt. And then it goes into some other things that some of the Azazel's angels revealed to people about astrology and contation, sort of the what, what uh, Judean would think is other people's magic is what the angels introduced as well. But this idea of war and sex, or at least sexual attraction, and therefore adultery, killing and adultery is, is what the angels introduce, and it becomes rampant among humans because these angels have introduced it. So it's Azazel that primarily, if you look through the narrative again, when you get home, you'll see that it's Azazel consistently that that comes back to, and that the meeting with human beings consistently comes back to Semyaz. So before 225 BCE, there was already the development of two, two different strands of development, at least, expanding the story of the sons of God meeting with the human beings in a way that is about fallen angels going against the will of God. So Satan's story began before we got to 225 BCE, didn't it? But the way we have it here is one author pulling together those two traditions, those two different stories, those two different ways of interpreting Genesis 6, and expanding them and emphasizing things in a particular way. So in this document, and we'll ask this in other cases when we look at writings, evil comes from outside of humanity, doesn't it? Evil, quite clearly, comes from angelic beings that are supposed to be up with God, hanging out with God. That is how wrong ways of doing sex and violent war got introduced to humanity through these fallen angels. What about the consequences of this action? So the, the, the sin has happened, the evil has been introduced, 
One of the consequences, we already know, because the flood comes next, is humanity is going to be wiped out entirely. But what about the consequences for the fallen angels? What happens to them? This is the first glimpse of hell you get, chronologically speaking, in our evidence. Look at the beginning of chapter 10. And then spoke the Most High, the Great and Holy One, God talking here. For the earth and everything will be destroyed, and the deluge is about to come upon all earth, and all that is in it will be destroyed. And now instruct him in order that he may flee, and his seed will be preserved for all generations. And secondly, the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and throw him into the darkness. And he made a hole in the desert, which is in the Dudile, and cast him there. He threw on top of him rugged and sharp rocks. And he covered his face in order that he may not see light, and in order that he may vent into the fire on the great day of judgment. That final judgment that's coming. So there's a temporary hole for Azazel. So this idea of a pit being dug, here being a place of imprisonment for the head fallen angel that goes against God's will, the evil fallen angel being imprisoned under the ground until some future judgment. This is the origins of hell. This is the first reference to hell in that sense that we have. It's not yet hell where human beings are tortured and all that, but it's where the fallen angel is trapped and kept until the final judgment. It's not the place you go after your final judgment. It's a holding place for the fallen angel. A little bit later on there in verse 11 of the same chapter, you have the explanation of what happens to Semyaz. And to Michael God said, Make known to Semyaz and the others who are with him, who fornicated with the women, that they will die together with them in their defilement. And when they and all their children have battled with each other, and when they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, the offspring, and their human wives, bind them for 70 generations underneath the rocks of the ground until the day of their judgment and of their consummation until the eternal judgment. So there, Semyaz has a similar fate as Azazel. Sort of a duplicate, duplicate fate. Uh, it goes into a little more detail, though, on that one, doesn't it? It's now talking about the eternal judgment, the final judgment of God, which is part of the apocalyptic worldview and not part of the Israelite religion that existed before. It's, this is something that's new with the apocalyptic worldview. In those days, in the end of eternal judgment, they will lead them into the bottom of the fire and in torment. So there's an idea of fire and torment. In the prison where they will be locked up forever. And at that time when they will burn and die, those who collaborated with the fallen angels will be bound together with them from henceforth until the end of all generations. This is the real moral message of First Enoch. It, remember that this author's not just telling stories for the sake of stories. First of all, he's telling stories to explain the origins of evil. He's telling stories in order to explain what he thinks God has told him is going to be the end of evil. But he's also telling these stories for a moral reason. Human beings will have a fate similar to these fallen angels. In other words, there are human beings that, will, that like Azazel and like Semyaz will be punished in the way that the fallen angels are punished. Punished in the end times, when God finally intervenes in this apocalyptic scenario. 
What happens to the righteous? That pops right into the mind of the author here, right after he said that. Right after he said there's going to be human beings that are going to have the same fate as Semyaz and Azazel. He goes on to the righteous ones in verses 17 and following. So this chapter, in a way, sort of summarizes the end-time scenario in an apocalyptic thinker's mind. And then all the righteous ones will escape and become the living ones until they multiply and become tens of hundreds and all the days of their youth and the years of their retirement they will complete in peace. And in those days the whole earth will be worked in righteousness, all of her planted with trees and will find blessing. And they shall plant pleasant trees upon her, vines. And he who plants a vine upon her will produce wine for plenitude, a whole lot of wine. And every seed that is sown on her, one measure will yield a thousand measures, and one measure of olives will yield ten measures of presses of oil. And you cleanse the earth from all injustice, and from all defilement, and from all oppression, and from all sin, and from all iniquity, which is being done on earth. Remove them from the earth, and all the children of the people will become righteous, and all nations shall worship and bless God, is the me. And they will all prostrate themselves to me, and the earth shall be cleansed from all pollution, and from all sin, and from all plague, and from all suffering. And it shall not happen again that I shall send these upon the earth from generation to generation. So here you have that whole idea of the duality of divine beings, God versus, and Gabriel and Michael, the good guys, versus Semyaz, Azazel, and all their angels, versus one another, dualism. Humanity being on one side or the other. Humanity that is with Azazel and Semyaz having the same fate in the eternal judgment at the end time when God intervenes. The righteous having a perfect, blissful place to live forever. Heaven and hell in this form is born as is Satan within the Judean apocalyptic worldview. It's only emerging now. It's not something that's already everyone thinks. It's now beginning to emerge among some Judeans. The moral message of these visions is that humanity now, in Enoch's time, we're living in 225 when Enoch's writing to us. What about the offspring? So in the Genesis narrative, we already had the sons of God mating with humans and there were offspring. It was vaguely expressed as Nephilim, warriors of old, those good old giants that were really good warriors in Genesis narrative. There's not much of a value judgment in Genesis, is there? What about how first Enoch develops that? Who are the offspring, and how does he express the story of what the offspring importance is? So this first Enoch explains that the offspring were giants, which may be similar to how Genesis was thinking of it. But then in first Enoch, but not in Genesis, they are the origins of demons, evil spirits. So what chapter are you in? So chapter 15 of first Enoch verses are lines 8 and following. And so God or the angel is saying to Enoch, But now the giants who are born from the union of spirits and the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits, notice that inside the earth thing. The idea that somehow these, the ghosts of the giants, when they die, continue to do evil on the earth and under the earth, in the ground. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies because from that day they were created from the holy ones. They became the watchers. Their first origin is the spiritual foundation. So they had origins as angelic beings. But they're sort of bastardized angels, right? They're human combined with angels. 
They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. The dwelling of the spiritual beings of heaven is in heaven, but the dwelling of the spirits of the earth, which are born upon the earth, is in the earth. The spirits of the giants oppress each other. They will corrupt, fall, be excited, and fall upon the earth and cause sorrow. They eat no food, nor become thirsty, nor find obstacles. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of the people and against the women, because they have proceeded forth from them. So the idea is the ghosts of the offspring become demons that continue to haunt us today in 225 BCE when First Enoch is written to us. There are evil demons in the world who are still working evil among humanity in the mindset of this author. And he explains them as originating in the offspring of Azazel and Semyaz. 